Welcome to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, episode 57. Today on the show, I have Rick Brunner, nutritionist and author of Explosive Ergogenics for Athletes. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, gym aware, K-Box, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments, allowing me to look at the 10 meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none. Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to another episode of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith. And today on this show, we have Rick Brunner, nutritionist, Really excited to have Rick on. He's a guy I've actually been uh, trying to track down to get on the show for some time now. I, I first met Rick back in 2014 at Jay DeMeo's Central Virginia Sports Performance Seminar, where Rick spoke on a variety of nutritional topics and supplementation. And it was just such an amazing talk. And I found out there that Rick also, he lives uh, not too far away from me here in the Bay Area. In San Francisco, so we've been also were able to connect after that. Uh, Rick really got me onto Alpha GPC, which uh, I shortly thereafter uh, bought some and found it to be not only uh, incredible workout enhancer in terms of power, but also it just it was kind of cool for improved mental clarity. That's like a brain booster, and Rick was kind of ahead of his time in recommending that because after it was like shortly thereafter he had really started to highlight it you started to see it a lot more often. And so it was cool to be on the cutting edge uh, just on account of Rick there. Uh, Rick is also uh, the creator of Myosync, which is a alpha GPC-based supplement. He wrote the book Explosive Ergogenics for Athletes, which has not only, uh, doesn't like, it not only covers a wide range of supplements and ideals behind it, but he also has kind of his recommended stacks of sorts for athletes. Uh, and, and, it's really cool because it's like you go to, I mean, you, you look at a supplement and you see a you know dozen, maybe more ingredients to that. And Rick off, operates off of a very simplistic, simpler is better. Uh, and you'll hear it from, from uh, the Ultimate Athletic Concepts Camp, the minimal effective dose mindset, not just trying to, you know, melt someone's face with the pre-workout with, you know, ton of caffeine and, and all this other stuff in it, as we'll get to. Uh, just great practical practical guy tons of experience he's come up through the dawn of sports supplement era uh, heavily active with creatine coming to the market uh, in the early 90s he spent extensive time in russia learning from soviet scientists 
Uh, he's a good friend of Anatoly Bondarchuk. Uh, Rick was a hammer thrower himself back in the day, and he's going to get into his background a little bit and tell you guys about that. But uh, Rick is a first-class nutritionist to have on the show. Uh, he's not only a sports science su- or supplement guy, but he's also uh, does a lot of work with just uh, general nutrition and foods and health. And you'll hear him get into a little bit of that towards the end of the episode today. But uh, throughout the show, we're going to talk about his background. We're going to talk about creatine, selecting good a good quality creatine. We're going to talk a lot about the role of pre-workouts and uh, even some like uh, other types of supplements in uh, blunting the stress response and how pre-workouts might not always be the best idea if you're trying to create a stress response. So that's something that I think is a little unique. You're not going to hear that everywhere, uh, but it's it's really good information. And when you see this mess of supplements driven by marketing, you might realize that, hey, maybe this isn't what they're saying to do isn't the best thing for me. And that's why it's just so great to have someone like Rick on the show, someone with such great experience and such an intelligent guy and can help us navigate the, the field of sports supplementation today. So let's get to episode 57 with Rick Brunner. All right, Rick, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here today. Thanks, Joel. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah. So could you uh, start it all off with telling us a little bit about your background in nutrition, where you've been, and how you got to where you are now? Well, my background probably started uh, very much uh, early 1980s. Um, uh, I was out of college. I graduated uh, with a couple degrees from Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo, and uh, I competed in track and field. I was a hammer thrower and uh, All-American in the hammer throw. And um, and I never took any supplements really during uh, during my track and field days. I just worked on eight, maybe a multivitamin or something, but it was really in its infancy back then. So um, in the 80s, uh, sport nutrition started to come out a little bit. And uh, so I, um, around 1985, 86, I think I started uh, working with a, a new startup company called Champion Nutrition, which was based out of Fairfield, California. And uh, in the startup and um, they had developed a few different products and um, uh, one of them was uh, metabolol uh, in the older any of the old dogs might remember metabolol back in the days but uh, metabolol was out we, we launched that and uh, and uh, and then another product that had uh, called muscle nitro which had a compound called mineral succinates magnesium potassium succinates and i thought well what's the succinate stuff you know and so there was, um, it actually kind of evolved out of some Russian science, some Soviet science. And I was really intrigued with that. So I, um, I decided I would go to the Soviet Union with the NSCA group that was traveling. They were going to go to Bulgaria and then on to, on to uh, Russia. Um, and so I did. I got uh, on a plane in San Francisco and we flew to Montreal and then, and then Prague and then Sofia, Bulgaria, and then Varna on the Black Sea, and so jet lag deluxe. And so I started uh, my first ex- experience with really um, the elite level nutrition was started really in Bulgaria. I worked, uh, I had a good opportunity too, because I was the only guy in the group that was really interested in the nutrition side. Everybody else was a strength and conditioning coach, so they were looking at the training aspects. And so I had um, a great opportunity with uh, scientists and team physicians and whatnot to discuss nutrition. And uh, I did, I took advantage of that. And so I, I talked with the uh, head uh, uh, doctor for the Bulgarian Olympic weightlifting team and some other 
researchers there in Bulgaria. And then um, really my real breakthrough came when I went when we went to Moscow and um, I got to to attend uh, trainings and uh, I mean uh, uh, educational programs with uh, different scientists in the Soviet system, and including Yuri Verkoshansky, a number of your listeners might know uh, know of Yuri Verkoshansky and uh, exercise physiology and got to know Yuri quite well and uh, and whatnot. So that was my first taste of the Soviet nutrition and kind of getting out of just the general nutrition stuff. So, um, and then I, in, in, that was in 1988. And then again in 1988, I was invited back to an international symposium in Leningrad, which is now St. Petersburg. Um, and there's a big institute in Leningrad that's an athletic performance institute. Um, it was run at that time by a, a guy named Victor Rogoska, and Victor's quite well known internationally. Um, and uh, so uh, I was I attended that symposium, and I got to know a lot of scientists from all over the world. And uh, that's kind of where I started. And then from there, I came back, and um, it was interesting. On that trip, I was I was already working on some supplements, some different formulations and whatnot. I think we'd already probably launched some things and and whatnot, but. Uh, I was working on a, a an amino acid powder, and it was um, really the first one of the first really hydrolyzed amino acid powders uh, on the market. And uh, I was I wanted to make it a little more anabolic, so we were on a little venture into town to see some sites. And I was talking to some of the Russian scientists, and I said, you know, I, I'd like to make this thing more anabolic. What would you what would you recommend I I do with it? And um, I can remember one of the uh, scientists, I think it was probably Nikolai Volkov, uh, said, uh, why don't you put some creatine in it? <laughs> and I thought, what the heck is creatine? You know, I didn't have a clue. And so uh, I came back and started researching creatine a little bit. And some of the people at the symposium, too, were creatine researchers. I really didn't know as much about it at the time, but Eric Holtman was there, and Eric was one of the, the first scientists to study creatine in uh, athletic performance. Um, him, he and uh, Roger Harris from uh, Britain had co-authored one of the very first papers on creatine monohydrate. So, um, so I came back and, and added creatine monohydrate to this, uh, this, this amino acid product that I had. And, and it was, um, it was very effective. I had a lot of my elite athletes used it. The only problem with it was it tasted really, really bad. <laughs> and so it taught me a lot about, you know, who will actually take this stuff. So <laughs> it wasn't a big seller probably, but it was a, a big performance booster. It just tasted, it, it, uh, hydrolyzed amino acids taste really bitter and really nasty. So, um, but that's what we wanted. I wanted something that would really give results. So, that's what we did. And then from there, it just evolved into different products and whatnot. And today, I'm still involved a little bit as well um, in uh, in, in uh, nutrition, in sport nutrition, and looking at uh, you know the science has exploded. You know, obviously, if you go online and look at the the science on creatine, even creatine monohydrate, it's it's probably in the hundreds now of scientific papers. On it. So it's been quite well researched, and and now there's iterations in creatine and and many other things. So that's that's where I started. Yeah, yeah, that's a great story, Rick. I, I it's just really interesting how you had gone, you know, to Russia and, and taken a lot of those lessons back here, and and I imagine like the the difference in the cultures and what the methodology was was pretty significant back then. Yeah, I mean, I have a picture, an old picture of me back in probably 1989 or 90, holding a giant kettlebell over my head, <laughs> and uh, and it, back then nobody knew what the heck a kettlebell was, you know, and stuff like that. And and I traveled there many times. I've been to uh, Russia many times. Uh, haven't lately because uh, most of the scientists I work with have 
either passed away, unfortunately, or uh, or have immigrated to different countries. We have a couple in the U.S. now that live here uh, as well. So, uh, but uh, my early my early education on the different things that the Soviets were using uh, nutritionally, um, and and um, you know it's common knowledge now that they were doping uh, a lot as well. And uh, I was privy to a lot of that <laughs> even back then. I, I mean, I knew. Um, what what they were doing and uh, was acquainted with some of the researchers involved in those in those groups, but um, but still the su- the supplement side they were they were doing some interesting things that scientifically still hold validity today. I mean they're they're uh, the different types of nutrients and the the direction of of uh, how they influence the body uh, is still valid today. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. I like what you said about how bad creatine tasted when it first came out it's funny like now athletes now have no idea (laughs) of what stuff used to taste like but you almost feel like maybe too like if a supplement tastes really bad that might add to the mental effect of its effectiveness you know um like you're you're taking something that's like awful because it's so effective versus something that just tastes good Um, yeah i think i think it kind of goes both ways you know it's one is that only a very few people few number of people will take it because it does taste so bad um, but that's true it might be uh, like well if it tastes that bad it's got to be good for me kind of thing but most things today are made to taste yummy I mean that's you know unfortunately that's kind of the way things go is uh, and, and I've never really gone that route but a lot of nutri- sport nutrition companies have kind of gone that route of making thing making you feel it okay with you know you put niacin in it to cause flushing or or caffeine to give you kind of a boost, boom, you know, kind of a thing. But then just to feel it. And um, and that's, and even creatine, you know, you kind of, if you get a result quickly on things and, and whatnot. So, uh, but I've always been more long-term in my thinking of training and supplements and, and whatnot and not working so much on the, the yumminess and the, the feel of it right away because some things genetically take long-term. I mean, they take, they take time. And, so, and as does training. So training isn't instant either. So, um, you know, supplements shouldn't be given should be given enough time and opportunity to work with the training. Yeah, no, that's a great that's a great point. I I'm excited to talk with you a little bit about that later on when we get to um, the pre workouts and and especially yeah, like put throwing beta alanine in there and you you get feel like ants are crawling your face. So obviously, um, it must be something must be working. I must be like ready to lift more and and uh, so much stronger now after they put that stuff in there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, creatine, though, I want to stay on that for a little bit. I, I uh, just especially with your experience with it. So, uh, can you tell me about a little bit? Oh, a couple things. Uh, first, how did creatine kind of make its way into the USA? Wasn't it like really expensive when it first came in? How did it become mainstream? Um, you know, I don't. Uh, again, back when I was uh, in that little venture into uh, into town, we were going to the uh, the Tsar's uh, 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 Winter Palace and uh, to see, see uh, some uh, art exhibits and some other things. And we were just we were just cruising in there, and I, I kind of casually said, "Hey, I'm working on this product." So uh, I had brought it in. I don't know if anybody else had done anything with it. I I seriously doubt it. I, I you know Eric uh, Holtman and. Uh, Roger Harris didn't publish their first paper until 1992. So I don't think anybody knew until 1992. Now, at that point, I think um, I think uh, uh, Ed Bird and Anthony Almada, who, st- who started EAS, uh, really, really took it. I mean, I didn't I didn't take it and uh, and do with it what they did. They, they took it and really made it into a thing. And 
and and that was when the papers were starting to be published on it and saying, you know, hey, this is great. And I spent time with um, with Ed a little bit prior to that because I Ed started Ed started at Champion Nutrition, so I knew him from there. And uh, you know, we chatted about different things and my my business in the Soviet Union and whatnot. So that's probably where pretty much where it started, and then it just kind of morphed from there. Yeah, uh, EAS that was the first creatine I used in high school, phosphagen. That was the first yeah, right. uh, my yeah. first kind. Uh, I I question I had a couple of follow up questions kind of uh, with creatine and one. Um, I, this is something I've always kind of thought of is you hear the stories of like the lean mass gained and the strength gains you get through creatine, but then the physiology behind it would be more like it, it, a lot of people, or it would say it gives you more energy. You can get energy into the cell again quicker because of the, uh, the phosphate, the effect on the, uh, phosphate molecule. Um, so how does, uh, in, in, as far as your thoughts go, how do you feel like creatine, what is the link with strength in creatine? Why are athletes getting stronger? Uh, when they're utilizing it? Well, you're, you're probably right. There's, there's part of it is a cellular energetics thing of it, but you know, you got to under, understand that muscle contractions are involving cellular energy too. So they have to have enough uh, force to contract uh, uh, sizably. And that's really where the growth stimulus, you know, one of the, in the stimulus pathway, the anabolic pathway has to occur. So, you know, I, I think it's probably more, you know, we know that it's you know, it benefits more speed strength athletes than it does endurance athletes. So it's something about the uh, the force of contractions probably that it it definitely helps with, and then uh, and stimulates muscle growth that way. So um, I think it, I think it, it's talking about it on it as an energetic, uh, you know, something that it can improve, improve uh, contractions is probably the best way to look at it. Awesome. Uh, and then going along with that, Rick, uh, what? What are your guidelines for selecting a quality creatine these days? What are some What are some things to look at to be like, hey, this is something I want to be putting in my body and, and using uh, for athletic performance? Well, I, you know, back in the um, in the uh, '80s when I started working with it, I bought it from a company in actually in the United States called Schweizer Hall. Now they don't, I don't even know if Schweizer Hall is in existence anymore. They don't make it anymore. I know that, um, but um, but but that's back then. That's where I got it, and I think I paid. Probably a hundred, just a little north of a hundred dollars a kilo for it, wow. <laughs> which is a lot. You know, I mean, that's that's for raw material, that was pretty sizable. It's probably like ten dollars a kilo now, or something, or twenty. I don't know, but um, but I do know that Creapure, which is is from Germany, is probably the one that I would use. Um, Creapure, German creatine, the quality of it has always been very high, and um, there are, are a number of companies. I, I consultant with a company called Jaro Formulas in the, in the U.S. And I know Jaro has, they, they use Korea, they, they use Korea pure material. Jaro is known for using really good raw materials. So, um, and I'm sure you can find it in other brands as well, but Korea pure probably would, would be where I would go. And I'm sure there's other quality companies, you know, but back, just speaking from historic uh, creatine supplies, I know that like the Chinese were trying to really flood the market. Chinese, the Chinese material, um, had issues with purity and also with um, adulterants in it. And uh, so I never used Chinese material. And I, don't, I'm, I would imagine that some material still comes out of China. Um, but, but I uh, I avoided it back then. I mean, I, I don't know. I can't speak for now. But I do know that um, I, I, early on there was a lot of issues with um, issues with uh, or problems with uh, do doping and supplements. And I don't know if that's still prevalent, but I know people are more careful now about 
choosing supplements and whatnot. And, uh, and athletes were um, claiming, you know, again, that they uh, had just taken a supplement and then they were, they were, they were flagged for, for doping offense, like an anabolic steroid, for instance. So, um, and I do know that a colleague of mine in Austria had tested his creatine from, from uh, China and found steroids in it. So, so, so it, it, it probably wasn't out of the realm of a possibility that, you know, company, you know, it's common for, um, and I, I, it's unfortunate, but it's common for Chinese material to, to spike things or to synthesize things. Like I work with a lot of plant material and, um, the plant material is, uh, is sometimes spiked by, so I don't use Chinese material for that reason. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I just, I, I think Creapure is probably a really good choice and there, there's probably others. I just haven't, I'm not, I'm not in the loop now as much as I was. Yeah, no, that, uh, that's interesting. It, it makes, uh, it makes sense. Uh, and then I, <laughs> the whole, like, yeah, the whole, uh, spiked or dope supplements. I mean, I'm learning more and more about the, the dangers of those, I guess, uh, as I, as I work with Olympians now, uh, and, and just everyone's, even if it's better today, I mean, we still, even if, you know, because there was stuff back then you can never be too careful. And, uh, I think about like the first time, yeah, the first time I used creatine, I got, I gained like, I mean, I gained 10 pounds, but it wasn't all water weight. I mean, I was getting strong. And my, I remember I was, what I was like two, two years ago, I made my wife watch this video of my high school track, high school track performance. And she was like, man, you're really like, you're really big and strong looking your senior year. Like, why don't you do that again? <laughs> like, uh, maybe, so maybe that stuff I took had something extra. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, that's, that's, that's fascinating. Um, also, uh, last question on creatine and, uh, people always talk about this, and I'm interested on in your take. Uh, I actually just heard uh, a podcast with Mark Sisson and Mark's Daily Apple saying, uh, like, a guidelines of loading and deloading, like, six weeks on, eight weeks off, and used to, like, three weeks on, one week off, or all these different things. Do you have any uh, take on loading or deloading something like creatine? Um, you know, I think, not. you know, I, I think it's just you have to play with it a little bit. Uh, you know, it's changed so much over the years as far as I don't know if anybody's done any studies, any, any published studies on loading it or anything. But um, I think back, you know, from what I understand, at least in the early days when we used it, there was two ways to do it. There was a, you could take a small dose of a few grams or whatever. And because um, I think in the, in the amino acid product I made, I think there was only, I think I only put like a gram or two grams in a dose. So wasn't really super high, um, but you can take a few grams like that and do it over a long period of time just to, to re, uh, reload uh, phosphocreatine in the muscles uh, so that when you do high, high intensity training, you know, anything from uh, heavy weightlifting to, to plyometrics and shock training and stuff like that, that it's, it's there, it's, it's in, the, in the muscle. So, you know, a low dose is probably fine. And then a higher dose was used, used like five or 10 grams, I suppose, somewhere in there was used for a more of a shorter period of time, kind of a, an initial shot. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's fine too. So I don't know as if there's any method of the madness uh, on it uh, uh, and cycling it too. You know, cycling might have some applications. You know, you don't, you don't ever want to get the body too comfortable with anything. And, um, you know, I call a lot of these things goodies. You know, these supplements are goodies. And um, you really don't want to, and we'll probably chat some more about that adaptive response and stuff, but you don't want to give the, the, the body goodies all the time. You want to make it work because that's the whole idea of training. I mean, training is creating a, a functional stress that's going to allow you hopefully efficiently to adapt 
to a higher level of performance. So, um, you know, introducing supplements all the time just for the supplement's sake may not be it, may not be, may, you know, um, but like you said, you know, you gain strength and weight and everything. And yeah, I don't agree that it's water weight. I think it's a, a you know, there's nothing wrong with cell volumizing, by the way. It can be very anabolic. So, um, you know, that's not necessarily a, a negative for it at all. Uh, but in addition to that, it does, uh, it, it was shown to improve, you know, assist you. It's not magically going, it's not anabolic in its sense of it's not a protein like an amino acid formula that's going to be turned into muscle. It's just going to allow you to improve your performance by performing at a higher level. And uh, so that's where I, I think it fits. So loading wise and all that, you know, I think listen to some of the people that have been doing it now and then try it. That would be my recommendation. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I'm sure everyone is everyone's an individual too. So what you know, the the three week on, one week off, or six on, eight off protocol. I'm sure if it worked for somebody, it might work different for someone else. I'm sure there's some experimentation that has to uh, be uh, at play for whatever yeah. the op, whatever the optimal is. Yeah, I agree. I like the the loading phase. Seems very Russian, like the shock phase, <laughs> shock training, <laughs> shock loading. Yeah. Shock! There's still a shock for everything. Well, all of, all of the Soviet stuff was very planned, so and tested. So it was. Uh, you understand that the Soviet system had thousands of athletes, and uh, if they wanted to do a study, it's not like the U.S. where they'd have to go through all kinds of protocols and everything. They would just go out and say, "You, you, 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 and you." <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> nice. And we're going to test you. So. Um, you know, they, in fact, adaptogens and things like that that are you know, like rhodiola and uh, and uh, eleuthero and stuff like that that the athletes were using too. Were, I mean, those were tested on thousands and thousands of individuals over many years. So um, their their pool of talent at all levels, you know, starting from young uh, uh, sports school athletes all the way up to elite athletes, was was quite high. Yeah, it just sounds like such a experimental system. I, I heard how experimental just Bonnerchuk was with his uh, uh, training schemes and and how he would you know experiment with different uh, setups and and just seems like a very experimental model, uh, which obviously got results over time through just constant tinkering. <laughs> yeah, you know if you have a, if you have a focus on like a hammer throw like Anatoly, he's a good friend of mine. I I was at a symposium a couple of years ago with him and finally got to. Got to see him. I hadn't seen him since Kiev, because uh, he's from he's from the Ukraine, and uh, so uh, uh, you know, just 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 have enough talent and enough focus, and what a great athlete he was himself, you know. And so, um, you know, trial and error. There's nothing wrong with it. In real world trial and error. You know, we can do all the laboratory stuff we want, and you know, the early days in the science, which was kind of the way it was, was, uh, in, at least in the U.S., was, uh, you know, if you did a human study at all, it was on, like, grad students or something like that, <laughs> you know, like, 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 you know, not real athletes and stuff. So, uh, or, or you know, it's, and today, too, a lot, of, a lot is done with medical research and stuff like that and, and diseases and stuff like that. So, you know, you have to cross that bridge and, and get into real-world practical athletic training and, um there's not as much of that, you know, at least in the West. And uh, so the Soviet system really had that opportunity. They had the opportunity to try and tinker and play with things and kind of see the big picture of, of, of things and how they performed. And uh, and that's what Anatoly did and you know, many scientists there. 
Yeah, that's great. Um, uh, let's get on to, I want to get moving on to, uh, some of these other questions, Rick and I, and stuff I'm really excited, especially as you uh, alluded to earlier, like not taking too many goodies. You don't want to blunt the body's ability to do what it does well. And so, uh, let's get into pre-workouts. Uh, I, I don't even know, almost know where to start. I have some questions listed, but, uh, general philosophy, pre- pre-workouts, what is their place? Well, they can have a place, but the problem uh, with a lot that I see with a lot of pre-workout supplements is, um, again, back to the goodies thing, is that if you just step back and you kind of think, well, what's training for, um, and what do I want to accomplish with my training? If I go into a workout session, and what do I really want it to do? Well, you have to have it create a stress a stress of some kind. The body responds to stress. All of life is about stress and responding to stress and adapting to that stress. So the supplement at that point in training, in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, but I've seen it over the years, that um, and, and many, many athletes from a very elite level all the way down to high school and whatnot, um, you don't want to add in a bunch of supplements in the training regimen that's going to make the training easier. Uh, and... The, and by that, what's that easier? Well, you know, my workout felt so much easier or I just, bla- you know, blazed through it. it, it because it, I, I think that it, it detracts from the training stimulus that the stresses that, you, that you're putting under the body is doing. So, in other words, there's a lot of different pathways that uh, uh, go into play when you're exercising and then the body adapts to those pathways in, in recovery and restoration. So if you give it all kinds of little goodies during the exercise, you may interfere with those pathways. And I'll give you a couple examples of that. Well, one specific one. Um, there's a lot of a lot of supplements, even pre-workout supplements, and a lot of people in the nutrition company do this when they formulate, and I don't know why, but they do. I think they think that athletes, when they see more ingredients on a label, think that more is much be, must be better or something like that. But They'll add like a vitamin premix or something. Even a lot of these electrolyte drinks have all kinds of vitamins in them. And vitamins are not electrolytes. They're, they're vitamins. And so vitamin C and vitamin E, for instance, are antioxidant vitamins. They're direct antioxidant vitamins. In other words, they, they reduce free radicals, or what we would call reactive oxygen or reactive nitrogen. So um, taking them in a pre-workout supplement may be actually a debt detriment to the training because the signaling molecules that occur during the training stimulus, the stress response molecules, some of those are, 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 re, are, are reactive oxygen, free radicals, and some of them are inflammatory cytokines or they're, they're, they're inflammatory proteins. They're part of our immune system. So those are ramped up during training and rightfully so because those are the signals that tell the body to get busy and adapt. And if you interfere with those signals, you blunt the training response. So you're really, you're really going backwards in a lot of ways. You're not getting the maximum amount. So the training, I think, pre-workout stuff has to be taken with a grain of salt and be very careful with it. And don't take it during, you know, a lot of these electrolyte drinks and things that, are, and goody drinks and stuff taken during the workout. I don't, uh, even at my age now, I don't, I don't, I don't take anything during workout. I rarely drink water at the workout because my workouts aren't that long. I'm not gonna be passing out or something like that but um i don't want to interfere with the interfere with the training response so that's kind of my take on uh, on pre-workout uh, supplements now i formulated a product um 
that is a little is different than that, and we do use it pre-workout, but it's not an electrolyte protein kind of a drink. It's more for neuromuscular power. It's called Myosync, and, we, and athletes take it um, about a half an hour before a workout. It helps with the force force output and, and reaction and neuromuscular response. But uh, in general, I don't use uh, a lot of pre-workout stuff. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I like. Just the idea of, yeah, of like uh, the things that are supposed to happen in the middle of the workout. Like, and you and I had talked about this before, like the idea of cortisol needing to be high during the workout so the body knows that it has, it's under stress and it needs to adapt. And if you take that away, uh, even if you, you feel good because of the cat, you know, the caffeine and the uh, beta alanine and all these things, it's, uh, you're, it's kind of like what's actually happening under the surface. You have no idea. Um, and, and so many athletes have no idea. It's just, it's to a lot of people. It's just how fancy is the label and, you know, who, who's, which one of their friends are using it and how do they feel during using it regardless of any science or any results. It's, it seems to be more about feeling than anything else, at least in terms of what people think it, they want to take and what's good for them. Yeah. And that, that's the feeling thing. And companies know that, that, I mean, historically, I, I you know, I have a lot of friends in the industry and I know that a lot of, a lot of companies know that athletes buy stuff that they feel you know that it, it's instant gratification um and even flavors you know it, it tastes yummy you know that's a feeling too so they, they formula the formulas are oftentimes made for that short-term feeling rather than the long-term you know training effect but you know, i guess if you think you know if it's a placebo effect and it's going to help me or something like that maybe you maybe you bless her but but maybe you don't maybe it's actually detracting from your your training and not, not all that has been studied so carefully, but I my gut feel is that a lot of things just should not be taken, uh, you know, pre-workout for that that reason. Yeah. Uh, what about uh, so? Yeah, tell me a little bit more about Alpha GPC, Rick. I know you had mentioned that you have it in Myosync. Uh, how does it work? How does it help athletes? Like, why is um? And you had I remember you were telling me about Alpha GPC shoot like three years ago or whenever I had met you, um, at Jay's seminar in Virginia. And you're like, this is going to be the next big thing. And now, yeah, you're seeing it a lot more often. Like, uh, and uh, so tell me a little bit more about uh, Alpha GPC. Uh, what's some of the principles behind it? How does it work? And uh, what are some things we maybe should be stacking with it or including with it? Well, so Alpha GPC is, uh, is uh, a possible choline source. Choline is... Um, a part of the molecule that forms uh, acetylcholine, uh, and acetylcholine, if you can think of it just kind of in a simple way, acetylcholine is like the bridge between the nerve fibers. And so the nerve fibers don't actually touch each other. They, there's, they, they need like a spark plug between them, and that acetylcholine becomes that spark plug. So that if there, aren't, if there isn't any acetylcholine in that bridge, then there's no connection with the muscle fibers, and they're not going to fire. And as simple as that. So... Um, so we add acetylcholine into the diet, into the program, and it's in myosync. It's a pretty high amount in myosync, and it's plenty, plenty in there for a, for a one-shot deal. Because myosync is only taken before a workout uh, or or an event, and uh, so alpha GPC creates that uh, it, it, it increases the acetylcholine level in the synapse, keeping it in there longer. So that more muscle fibers can fire, and we found—I mean, I've worked with it for a long time now. It uh, uh, came out a number of years ago. It's just kind of, you know, been out there a little bit. It's not cheap, uh, so that's another thing. You know, it's—it it's, is a—it it is a, a cost, but um, 
But I always thought that uh, you know every mo- most athletes are, are are so focused, and I did too. Everybody does, you know. Everybody I mean, muscles and and anabolic and this and that and, and you know the anabolic side. They're so focused on the anabolic side that. It, but I, at one point, you know, being an athlete myself, and I you know what I wanted to accomplish, I knew that the neuromuscular response, the power and the explosiveness, was very important too. And it's not all just muscle. Because if it was, then every major giant bodybuilder would be an Olympian in track and field or something like that. So there's obviously more to it. So uh, alpha GPC is one of those nice nutrients that can work on the explosive side of training. And again, you have to put it in the right kind of training. If you're just going to sit there and probably do some curls or something like that at a slow pace, it may not be worth much. But um, it, explosive type training, you know, shock methods, plyometrics, uh, you know, high intensity interval training, stuff like that is probably going to be a benefit because it'll stay in the synapse longer. It's one of the things that we have in MyoSync. It's not the only thing because there's other things that you can do to maintain the explosiveness within the synapse. But um, but it's a very important part. And I chose it. There's other things. There's citicoline. Citicoline is another form of this. Um, and um, it, it's possibly uh, useful too, but I, I selected Alpha GPC because I knew it, it, it had a good uh, performance track record, so uh, that's why we took it. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I, I think that's, uh, I mean, I've used it, I've used it before. Uh, I definitely think it uh, is, is really fantastic. And do you think uh, like so in terms of stacking it with other things? I mean, I've I've when I first got it, this is actually before Myosin came out. I think I just went and I went to like the wholesale like the wholesaler. And I just got this powder powder in a a bag, and I just started throwing it in my pre workout I was already using, <laughs> and it worked well. I remember I think I put too much in though. It was really easy to with those bulk supplements. Like the 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 actual dose is so small. And I would like, after my workout, I would feel like mentally exhausted. And I was like, I wonder if it's alpha GPC, like, you know, just like kind of feeling out like, cause it, 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 uh, helped me so much, uh, uh, for my brain output. Maybe I was just like kind of, uh, 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 went the other way a little bit cause I put too much in my, my pre-existing pre-workout with probably eight, 10 ingredients already. <laughs> uh, so yeah, was, yeah, right. Yeah. You could do it. You know, it's again, it's, it's sometimes every nutrient has its own, you know, and everybody's a little different too. You may, you alluded to that earlier that we're all a little bit different. And, um, and sometimes it's too much of a good thing, you know, and uh, it's like protein powder, you know, these, I, I'm just fascinated by these, uh, these laundry scoop size things of the tubs of protein powder and stuff like that. And, uh, and uh, the body can only use so much of something at one time uh, as well. So, um, you know, taking more of something, uh, the timing of it, the, the amount of it, all of that has to come into play. And uh, you know, we're uh, and we're we're all a little we're all a little different, but then we're uh, we're also all a lot alike. So um, you, you know, uh, it's just alpha GPC is one of those things where it probably doesn't take a lot of it. A lot of things actually can be like um, we call it epigenetics or above the genes. And things are can be epigenetic. They can they can influence gene pathways in a very small amount because they're they're also signaling molecules, you know. And so they don't take a they just take a lot of certain things. So more is more of something is not always uh, better uh, to take. 
Yeah, I almost think that that's, and I just uh, was talking about this with the last podcast with Jeff Moyer, like in training, starting with um, the smallest amount to, to utilize a response, not just starting out with something that's going to either crush or, or deliver a massive dose. And, and then uh, knowing knowing from the bottom rather than starting with the, just the, the, the top level. I mean, man, I, I'll tell you, I feel like there's almost an evolution of, of pre-workouts. Like I, I see these pre-workouts other coaches or athletes are using sometimes, and I'm astounded by how much caffeine is in um, each dosage now compared to what it used to be like five or ten years ago even. Yeah, well, and that's a lot of it. That's people feel something. You know, they feel it, but that doesn't necessarily make it right. You know, just because you feel something um, at the at the moment doesn't mean that it's going to. All, everything that you do in training, everything you do with your diet, everything you do with your supplements should have a benefit long term with your training. I mean, training has to lead the way. A, you know, supplement isn't going to make make you an athlete. <laughs> it's gonna. Gonna, 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 if it's the right supplement, it can help you, in, in, you know, accelerate your your ability or enforce your ability. But it's not going to make you. You know, you have to do it, but you have to do it through training. Training has to lead the way. But I've always, when I've worked with uh, elite coaches, you know, and coaches uh, uh, that work with elite athletes like yourself, that um, um, to understand how the training is done, so that the supplement protocol can be designed to support the training. You know, it's, it, and so it's not so haphazard. But in 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 America, it's kind of loosey goosey. You know, it's it's not as exact, and uh, it, it could be a lot. Be- it could be a lot better, and and it's just as important to avoid certain things that is as it is to introduce certain nutrients. Yeah. Do you? Uh, so, uh, last question here on the pre-workouts, and then I'd like to talk a little bit more about the stress response. But uh, uh, guidelines for using something like alpha GPC. Uh, which works through maybe a little bit different pathway than something like caffeine. Uh, how, uh, at what points should athletes be looking to take uh, that in their pre-workout uh, versus uh, versus obviously other things? And then well, in, in I, the competition I, we, schedule, we worked with it. Um, I started working with it quite a few years ago. My gosh, it's probably been ten years ago, maybe twelve, that I started working with Alpha. The first time it came on the scene, and I started working with it. And, um, uh, I, you know, kind of common sense says, well, it's got to be in, it's got to be in the body. It's got to be in the synapse and so, or, or support that acetylcholine level in the synapse. So it's got to be in there at a certain time. It's not really a post-workout thing because it's, it's, that's done. Okay. The, the explosive, the, the muscle firing. See, it's all about it is, is just muscle firing. The muscles can fire. If more muscle fibers can fire. Then you're 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 going to get more of a, a stress signal, okay, and then you're going to respond to that in adaptation and in, in recovery. So afterwards, it's probably not a big deal to take, I, I don't think. Um, but uh, so I we 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 introduced it with myosync in, inside the capsule with some other ingredients to help this force output process. And uh, so um, you know, half an hour, an hour before, and maybe even before that, you could take some or whatever to load it in there. I don't I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. I have a friend in the industry. He always says, I don't know. Nobody knows. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's almost comical, but it's it's true. It's just, you have to play with the, these things a little, to some extent. And um, I don't know if that's been studied about the timing of things. But um, in my gut feel and experience with it for a number of years now is to take it pre-workout, um, you know, half an hour, an hour before, something like that probably would be good timing for alpha GPC. 
All right. Uh, so moving on, a stress response. Uh, what What's your take on uh, some of like the nutrient timing ideals then too? So outside of maybe even uh, like like specific supplements, but the idea of, of carbohydrates or or like like the sugary cubes athletes eat in the middle of the workouts and. Uh, What's your take on, I guess, nutrient timing in general, like that that system and idea in general, and then some of these high sugar type uh, concentrated, uh, I guess you call them a supplement or, uh, or food or you know, food supplements, gels that athletes are having in the middle of these workouts. Well, you know, I think that you know, you and I have discussed these cube things and stuff <laughs> before, kind of, uh, you know, watching the athletes train and then they go and they get they grab a cube and they down it and then they're back training again and stuff and so. I don't know if that's um, really because of the cubes uh, nutrient value or or if it's because it tastes yummy. <laughs> I think it's more because it tastes yummy. I think it's candy. And so, I mean, let's call it what it is. Oh, uh, I always call it candy cream. myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, who doesn't like candy? You know, and athletes are athletes at a certain age, you know, in that uh, teens and 20s and even 30s are you know, working machines i mean you know stuff and i always tell people this because i work a lot right now i'm not now my research is more focused on um, on middle age and beyond because i i is one you know and uh, <laughs> so i'm studying what more more of the health things and uh whatnot but i always tell people that, that you know athletes are or young at young young people that are training can just about eat anything i mean they can plow through a burger and fries no <laughs> problem and uh you know and that may not be necessarily be the best thing uh, all the time but um you know, athletes, are, the body's pretty forgiving because it just needs energy. At times, it just needs energy. It needs amino acids for rebuilding uh, enzymes and structural proteins and whatnot. And so um, the, the cube things, but I just think that taking, so, uh, you just have to be really thoughtful and careful about what you're taking, taking free, free and then uh, during, especially during a workout. Like I said, I, I, uh, I'm more of a believer in not taking anything during a workout. I, uh, I think the workout should be so freaking stressful in a targeted way. In other words, a functional stress that, um, that really where your gains come is in recovery, in restoration, in recovery. But taking something in, make sure, making sure, and a recovery isn't just short term. It's, it's, it's throughout the next day to the next workout. So, um, you know, making sure you get enough nutrients in there because there's eventually there's a threshold to everything. Like 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 proteins, you know. I, you know, how much protein does does one need, uh, and when does one take it, and all of that stuff. There, there's there's science to that, and and application to that. And so, taking too even too much protein at one time is is really not an advantage. Um, is it a disadvantage? I don't know. But um, if the body can only utilize, let's say, let's just pick whey protein because it's very common for athletes to take whey protein. Because it's a complete protein, it's very high in uh, essential and non-essential amino acids, especially leucine and branched-chain aminos. Um, and uh, uh, research coming out of uh, Europe a number of years ago showed that um, about 20 grams of, 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 of uh, whey protein was pretty efficient, but more than that was not. And so the question is, well, why? Why is more not better? Well, the body can only use so much at one time. If the body needs to replenish enzymes and and muscle proteins and whatnot in recovery, in a certain recovery window, let's say a few hours, um, 
it, it can only take those parts, those amino acids, and, and use a certain amount of them because the factory can only work so fast. And so by taking more of something at that point really is probably creating just more stress on the system and, and spending more money on, on something. It'd be better to take like 20 grams of, of uh, whey protein and do it every three hours or, you know, 20, 20 grams of protein post-workout, maybe a half an hour after a workout or something, and then a chicken breast for a long, you know, a few hours later, because that, that 20 grams is going to be enough to, 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 to ride it through. Now, bigger athlete, I've always told, you know, if I'm working with like an NFL lineman or something like that, yeah, I would recommend probably more. They're bigger guys. So they common sense that they probably need, maybe they need 30 grams, but, um, but a lot more. And some of these scoops are just like ginormous. And, uh, so I would, uh, you give the body what it needs to do what it needs to do in recovery. Yeah, the scoops in those uh, like Russian weight gainer five thousands that are like the scoops that are half the size of your head. <laughs> yeah, they got bigger and bigger over the years. Usually, you know, in the old days we had small scoops, <laughs> and, uh, and now they're just giant. And I think you know everybody kind of intuitively thinks the same with with supplements for the average person and vitamin, multivitamins and stuff like that. That you know, mega dose or or a triple dose or whatever more people think more is better and manufacturers think this too you know they think well if athletes think more is better let's give them more you know and because most most sport nutrition companies are really not very scientific let's get, get frank <laughs> with it yeah, I mean, let's get honest they're businesses they're they're run by suits that uh um are, are out to sell a product create a brand whatever and uh and they just kind of go with the flow. You know, sometimes companies will, well, this company's making one, so let's let's let let's us make one. You know, and uh, or let's make ours yummier, or let's give us they've got 100 milligrams in theirs, let's put 200 in ours. And there's no, it's just, it's just, it, it's more market. It's a more of a marketing philosophy than it is a scientific validity process. You know, and. Uh, you know, which doesn't serve the athletes, but the athletes kind of demand it. The athletes kind of think it too. Like, well, if a little bit is good, more must be better. And that's not necessarily true. You give the body what it needs. You don't want to interfere with the stress response and the adaptation response. So you've got to be really careful with that stuff. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure uh, it's... Uh... Yeah, if your supplement tastes good or you have this in there and the athlete feels a certain way, it's like you have to compete. Almost reminds me of what I have in my head almost is like the the movie The Big Short where the the credit rating companies like they could, you know, give the the banks a bad credit back then, but the the banks could just go to the next guy down the street and get the rating they wanted to. So they kind of had to and it's like people just kind of have to to keep up, I guess, in some way, uh which uh which is sad, but it's good that there's people like you who are just having a few select ingredients and putting things in that are useful and that actually work and are helpful for athletes. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, okay. Uh, Rick, so I got, um, basically just, uh, a couple more questions for you. Um, uh, I guess I can kind of wrap these up. Uh, but, uh, just talking about, um, uh, M tour and tour, uh, and then AMPK, uh, what did these two, um, uh, signals mean, for athletes and how does how can we approach those in training so a lot of athletes will probably not have any idea what you just said because <laughs> um, yeah, mTOR uh, which stands for 
used to stand stands for target of rapamycin or uh, mechanism of target rapamycin is a, is an anabolic process. Rapamycin is a uh, it's a strange word. It really is. I don't know. Somebody could have created a better one, I suppose. But kind of in in a big picture thing, Tor is an anabolic pathway. Let's just talk that way. Now, all of a sudden, athletes' ears have perked up. Ooh, anabolic. What's, ooh, that sounds like I want that. And, um, and, and rightfully so. So TOR is a growth pathway. But TOR can be a good growth pathway or it can be a not growth, good growth pathway. You could be high TOR and be obese, okay, because you're growing fat cells like no tomorrow. But you could also be TOR and be very muscular and very powerful. So TOR is a pathway that athletes should understand um, because it – it, it relates to anabolism. It works with uh, uh, creating uh, muscle muscle structure, enzyme. Athletes oftentimes think that, um, you know, they're, they're so fixated on muscle. But the, the enzymes are also protein structures in the body. Enzymes drive everything. So we really, you know, want to think beyond just muscle um, when we're talking about proteins. We're talking about enzymes, too. They're very, very important. And there's a lot of cofactors for enzymes. So... Tor works on an anabolic pathway. AM, AMPK, the other one you mentioned, um, which was uh, uh, AMP, activated protein kinase, is uh, is another pathway, and it's a catabolic pathway. So then athletes think, well, catabolic, well, that can't be good. You know, catabolism, breaking down, that's not good. Well, it's all yin-yang. The body is balanced, okay? So the body cannot be always anabolic. It has to break down. What does it have to break down? It has to break down things for fuel. Okay, it has to make energy so that muscle fibers can fire. So AMPK is a uh, is an energetic pathway, it's a, it, and I work with it a lot. I, I don't work as mu much with mTOR with older people, with middle age and over. I work with AMPK because most most people are actually high have higher mTOR than we want as we age. Um, it's it's mTOR is very important for for that window of athleticism, you know, teens to in your 30s, uh, it, it really fits in there. But uh, AMPK is another important one, and I've, I've lectured on it before. Uh, it, 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 with athletes, it's probably more important for burning fat because AMPK is a, a master uh, fat-burning pathway. So if you have excess body fat, um, AMPK is, is something you probably want to pay attention to. Now, how does it work? What is the... What is the pathway? It's AMPK is it just it's an enzyme, and so uh, it 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 then stimulates other processes which stimulate other processes with you know which do things. So in a simple way to explain it, um, when is AMPK high? It's high when you um, when you take certain supplements. And athletes won't probably ever take most of these supplements, but. Um, uh, certain supplements, and it's a high when you fast, when you don't have energy, and it's also elevated um, post-exercise to some extent, during exercise and post-exercise. So, and why is that? Well, it's an energetic deficit pathway. So, you, if if there's less energy, the body will make AMPK. If there's more fuel, more energy, the body will make TOR. Interesting. But it's again a balance between the. Too, and especially for athletes, it's a fight between the two. So, when would you want AMPK to be high? Well, you want to burn body fat. Um, if you fasted a little bit and then you've done kind of a high intensity interval 
aerobic type of a workout, then you've elevated AMPK. Basically, kind of in a simple way to explain it, the body says, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm out of fuel. I don't have any energy. I can't do anything. Um, hey, muscles, uh, mitochondria. Now, mitochondria athletes may not know what mitochondria are. They're little organelles inside muscle cells and other cells that, that, uh, that uh, uh, burn fat. And so um, no mitochondria, no fat burning. So we want to jack up our mitochondrial activity and make it work more efficient and build more mitochondria. Then we want to make AMPK. Uh, we want to elevate AMPK. So that's, that's kind of in a simple form. It's, um, uh, and then what, is, what would elevate TOR? Because I want to, oh, anabolic. Well, common, common stuff. Protein powders, amino acids, things like that. They'll just be the calories will increase TOR. So even athletes need calories. Let's face it, come on. You're burning through it. You need more energy to assemble more enzymes and more proteins. you got to have calories, and that's where, like the carbs and stuff like that, you have to have enough carbs in, in, uh, you know, in your food too, and maybe even in recovery, some carbs with your, your protein powder if you're taking it. That wouldn't be a bad idea. So that's where the TOR fits into an athletic uh, regimen. Yeah, I, I like that, Rick. I think that's uh, that's a great explanation of two uh, very uh, yeah two two uh, terms that not everyone hears all the time and and have very com or long and complex actual names. And that, that's that's really uh, it's good to know, I, especially yeah when everyone's always just thinking anabolic, anabolic, anabolic. That's all we want and think about. It's good to think of the yin and the yang and the balance. And well, you know, one of, one of the interesting things is. Um, <clears throat> And I'm working on a new product now that works on the tour pathway for athletes. Um, we're, 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 we're testing it right now. We, we do a lot of testing before we put anything out. And, uh, we're, we're, and by testing, I mean we – some testing, you know, could be – you know, athletes can see a study, you know, a double-blind placebo crossover study with, you know, 38 people. For, you know, you have to kind of think, well, what, who's been – who are they studying it on? What's the what's – the, environment that they're studying it in, who did they study, all that stuff it comes into play. So, But really, a lot of what we do is what we I would consider just applied outcome studies. And you just give it to an athlete and see how they perform. And if we worked with an athlete long enough to where we know how they function and and that it's not a placebo, we get a good feel. You know, if you test enough people, you can get a good feel. We've tested, like with Myosync, we tested a lot of people and uh, baseball players, soccer players, uh, football players, uh, on and on. And so, um, you know, we got a, we got a really good feel of, of who it works for, what the dose is, how, how, you know, who it might not work for is, is important too. How, why wouldn't it work? Sometimes, sometimes when you fail on something, you can, you learn something too. So, um, you, you learn a lot. So the new one that we're working on now, we're testing, you know, for the tour pathway, but, Athletes are, we mentioned the word anabolic, and a lot of times an, uh, athletes think, well, anabolic means like anabolic steroids, okay? So, and that's true. Anabolic steroids work on a process uh, called transcription. So, and transcription is like the beginning of the whole process of, let's say, assembling a, a muscle protein, okay? So, transcription means um, in, the, in the DNA, there's this blueprint on how to build this muscle protein. And so, the anabolic steroid basically allows that blueprint to be transcribed from the DNA to other compounds, other proteins called RNA. And RNA is like, as a group, it's kind of like the assembly. Okay, so the steroid gives you the blueprint. 
but then you have to have the factory to make this, the, 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 the uh, you have to have the workers to put together and build the muscle proteins, let's say. And so that's the other part of the equation that I think has, uh, has not been looked at as much, it's more now, and that's where like TOR fits. TOR doesn't fit at the anabolic steroid side, and again, athletes are making gobs. If any, in middle age, most most competitive athletes honestly are making a lot of uh, a lot of testosterone. Okay, especially men. Men are making a lot of testosterone. So, um, I've always thought that taking anabolic steroids is maybe not necessarily the best way to go, because again, it's a matter of what is the weak link or the bottleneck. Okay, to building what we want to build. And, and let's just pick protein again, let them skeletal muscle. So if we want to, for our concept is, well, I'm going to take more anabolic, I'm going to take anabolic steroids because that's going to make me build more more muscle. That's true. But a lot of times it drives, it kind of kind of forces the anabolism um, more than it needs to be forced because if the weak link is really down downstream in, in the assembly part, you really should address the assembly part, and so that's what we're doing now. That's what we—that's where tour fits, is in the assembly and in, in the in that next part. Okay, but athletes are making enough testosterone. It, more of more of a good thing is not necessarily a good thing. I mean, it's it, it's kind of like um, I, mean, I I I would like to expand on this a little bit. It's really important. Um, I work a lot with people that have blood sugar control issues like diabetics and what. And so it's very common. Uh, diabetes is, uh, is, a, is mostly an insulin, and type 2 diabetes I'm talking about, is more of an insulin resistant problem. In other words, the muscle cell just doesn't, when the, when the blood sugar rises in the blood, uh, insulin is produced to knock on the door and say, hey, there's blood sugar out here, you need to let it in and get, and get busy with it. But for some reason, the muscle is not sensitive. And so body has to produce more insulin to pound on the door, okay? When if you could just increase the sensitivity of the muscle, you wouldn't have to do that. And why would it be better to do that? Because insulin itself is very anabolic, but it grows things you don't want to grow, like cancer cells and, so, and body fat. So more insulin is not necessarily better at that point. You want to dial it down. And I think the same thing with an athletic window of your teens and your 20s and your 30s is more anabolic steroids. Yeah, will it get the job done and will it build more muscle? Yeah, it will, but is it pounding on the door rather than just knocking on the door? Okay, so if, if, if it can just knock on the door and get the job done, I think it'd be better to do that. And it certainly, with athletes that are tested and you're not supposed to be doping, then that would be, if I want to be a clean athlete, then I've got to think of other ways to efficiently use my testosterone that my body is naturally making. I hope that makes kind of sense that um, downstream now we have other parts of other players, other actors in this process to assemble enzymes and muscle, skeletal muscle and whatnot that um, that we really should be looking at. And that's where the Torpep data is. So enough of that. Yeah, well, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's uh, it is always there's always consequences when you when you're knocking on the door too hard <laughs> or kicking the door in <laughs> versus uh, just letting the body or letting the body operate as it was meant to. Yeah. Uh, Rick, I, that's all the time I have for the podcast today, though. But uh, thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate it, man. Oh, my pleasure. It's uh, good to talk to you, and all the best with you and your athletes.
All right, that does it for another show. Thanks for tuning in with us this week. We'll be back next week with Dave Karen of USA Track and Field. Until then, please visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology, K-Box, free lap timing system, 1080 Sprint, as well as a lot of other new cutting-edge things in the market. Browse through their store. They got it all if you want to get faster, stronger, and do so with some of the latest technology. Uh, also, if you like the show, please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever you happen to be listening to the show on. We'll see you guys next week.